Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection on today's show. Now strap in if you've never heard the story of the passenger pigeon, everybody. Because it's the most extraordinary extinct animal that you've never heard of. The spectacled caiman sounds like of the crocodiles. I want to say it's the one that owns a library card. (laughs) You know what I mean? Giraffe tongue. Oh... I don't know how that makes me feel. (laughs) (laughs) I've got to lather up the giraffe's tongue with some tan lotion. So you might remember that back in the summer, in June, we released the Festival of Nature special that we did about nature's festivals. Yep, yep, yep. And we both made notes for that episode. Mm -hmm. We both went away and researched stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's some notes that I made for that about sort of big nature gatherings okay. that we never got to. Yeah. So I want to give them the chance to shine. Of course. Um, I spent hours doing this. I'm not going to sit there and let them waste away. No, yeah. yeah. So w- this is going to sort of be a loose look at a couple of things that I found that are, are all centered around sort of big gatherings of species. So the first one I went to is army ants. Mm particularly army ants rather than just ants because army ants are infinitely cooler. I'm going to set myself up here yep. by just saying I do want to do mm. a special section on ants. You have mentioned this before. I know I have. And then you've come with all of your research today. But no, well, the army ants, it's little, we're just going to little touch on army ants. Fine, lovely, wonderful. And okay. I'm very excited for it. But yeah. I think ants are so crazy that they deserve a special. Maybe we real... should do it. Maybe we should go and like visit an ant farm. If you're listening and you have an ant farm, <laughs> and you would like to host a live edition of How Many Geese, where me and Roddy come and learn all about the ants. Or if you're listening and you are an ant, do reach out. We'd love to chat and find out more. Anyway, so army ants. So this is a name that applies to sort of 200 different species of ants that all share this common behaviour. So there isn't an army ant. Oh. There are 200 species I don't know how many, when we do the the ant special, we will find out, I'm sure, how many species of ant there are. But there's a lot. 200 are army ants. And the sort of classic behaviour of these ants is that that they'll march over large areas searching for their prey. Because most ants have a central home or a colony and send out scouts to find food before they come back, go, I found some food, recruit followers that then go out and get the food. Uh, and then bring it all back to that central colony where the queen is and where they're raising the larva, etc., etc. Army ants don't play by these rules because army ants don't make permanent nests. They move constantly through the forest, living in underground cavities that they sometimes excavate and live in for a few days. Some of them live there for up to sort of three months' time. But when they're in the marching phase, which is moving between these temporary colonies, they'll create a new nest each night, which are called bivouacs, which is quite nice. Are they actually called that? They're called bivouacs. Isn't yeah. that what, like a temporary, like yeah. Bear Grylls makes yeah, a yeah. bivouac? Bear yeah, Grylls yeah. makes bivouacs. Yeah. Out of army ants, probably. <laughs> Weaves them together. <laughs> just lashes them together. But yeah, so the army ants will create temporary homes each night when they're in this sort of marching phase and they're moving around looking for colonies. And they make them out of, any guesses? Humans. No. <laughs> <laughs> Themselves. Because of course they do, because ants are just insane so they make the 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 bivouac structure is just made out of anywhere between 150 to 700,000 worker ants just linking legs and creating like a roof structure that can be a meter wide that shelters the queen and the larvae in the middle until the morning when the bivouac dissolves and the ants all move on okay two questions from this one do we know how many 
are in the colony total? Is there like an average or? So, so like I say, there's 200 species. So it varies quite widely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One that I picked up on is the Dorylus. Don't know if I've pronounced that right. Genus, which are the biggest army ants. Biggest in terms of colony size. Right. And sort of actual size. Actual size. So, so the biggest queens can be two and a half inches long. Wow. So that's Which is kind of five, six centimetres-ish. Yeah. For... And in terms of colonies, the colonies can be up to 20 million. Whoa! Okay. Some reports even stating closer to 50 when the food runs short and they leave their underground nests and they're all moving to a new location they can be 50 million strong allegedly that's the population of tokyo <laughs> 50 million well it's roughly 37.4 so i was oh, round wow. but if we're going from between 20 to, to 50 yeah it's pretty bang on so we're going to populate because 20 million is more than london which was my first thought yeah wow where is in london Depends on where you're classifying London yeah. in a sense, but I think it's around like the 12 mark. Wow. 12 million. So you're almost sort of double. Yeah. For so like to- a, an average. Tokyo's three times the size of London. Jeez. Like, yeah. But what that then means to bring it back is we take everyone from Tokyo, have them march, and then at <laughs> night we have 600,000 Japanese people woven <laughs> together as a shelter for the Tokyo Queen. <laughs> Imagine that was the Olympic opening ceremony. <laughs> just all of Tokyo just marched into China. <laughs> the thing about army ants and the thing that makes them so infamous, I guess, is this behaviour where they just sweep across the forest floor in these unimaginable numbers, just hoovering up anything that's in their way. And in general, that is insects, any sort of insect in their way, whether it be a big insect or a small insect. But it can be some pretty large things it can be things like large rats and as we'll hear in a minute it can be things even sort of bigger than that and in general this seems like a pretty nightmarish situation with these ants sort of marching um, but they can actually be pretty useful because what i didn't realize is that people like the maasai and other local groups who live in areas where these army ants are if they know the army ants are coming they vacate their house and their farmland just for sort of like a day or so just let the army ants come through and they'll eat all of the insects and all of the pests. That's great. So they they allow the army ants to just come into their house and they'll crawl everywhere and they will just eat all of the insects, go through their farmland, work out all of the pests, and then the army ants just move on. So all, it's, it's great. I really like that a little bit. Right. Without having to go into too much detail, I recently had to get pest controlled into my flat. Now, this was months ago. Uh-huh. I know you're staying. We're all good. What was the pest? It was bed bugs. It's a whole... Yeah. I'm going to do a special on them. <laughs> <laughs> like... Um, but I don't know how happy I would have been if I'd phoned up Westminster Council (laughs) and they had said, what we're going to do is we've got this new contract (laughs) with the Doryless Army Ants of Central Africa. (laughs) And we just need you to pop out your flat for a day and they're just going to march through, crawl over everything and strip your flat bare. I don't know how I would have felt about that. Mm. But I guess no chemicals. So, yeah. you know, yeah. yin and yang, it's isn't an, it? It's, yeah, it's a nice uh, sort of holistic way of doing it. So you said Central Africa there because I thought that army ants were South American. But you're well, saying these 200 species are... The army ants is, it's 200 species, but the army ant description is about this behaviour, not necessarily sort of how related they are or whatever. Okay. So I think they're spread across the world. You get army ants in different continents. So it's certainly in Africa. So it's some kind of convergent evolution. Yes. But ants have converged to this roving behaviour. Yeah, and we once did, in the parasite episode that we did, we talked about slave-making ants. 
And that was another thing where they had convergently evolved this slave-making behavior in different parts of the, the world. so terrifying like we're so lucky that ants are small we like, honestly we are so lucky <laughs> but you just think of, like the the sort of amount of niches that they've created for themselves that you've got ones that build entire sort of cities that you've got ones that march across the environment hoovering up everything that you've got ones that make slaves the resemblances are uncanny <laughs> with our own civilizations we are big ants yeah there's an account here from somebody who lived in East Africa of the ants as they sort of march through. When they reached the home, they would enter and swarm all over the inside of the house. They would eat everything in sight that moved. They ate very little of our regular food, but they would eat all mice, scorpions, spiders, etc. They would kill and eat dogs and cats if they were trapped in the house also. So you would have to take your pets with you when you vacate your house when the army ants are coming. I don't know how much warning you're given uh, when the army ants come. But... I can't imagine it's much. I don't know how far off you can see 20 million ants. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> not to have to try to think. It's not like a wave, is it? Yeah, because they're not going to be... They're going to be long. You know, they're spread out in one big long. Right, okay. I don't know how wide the uh, the sort of phalanx of ants can <laughs> yeah, be. The battalion. But uh, I don't know how fast they move either. As long as you've got your dog and your cat then your house will suddenly be free of mice, scorpions, spiders, etc. And they leave all your regular food. How nice. I thought army ants were like this really terrifying thing. And then as I sort of read more about it, I was like, oh, actually, you know, the people that are living alongside them actually have, can, can get a lot of benefit from them, which is nice. Yeah, but they have to get out the way. Well, yeah. Like, you know, they're not, they're not so nice that you can just sit there and they work around you. Like, yeah, you have true. to move for fear of being consumed by ants. <laughs> <So>. stripped of <laughs> flesh by ants. Yeah, that's true. Another benefit of the army ants, have you seen it where they use the soldiers of the army ants and their jaws to close wounds and heal wounds? What? So if you've got a cut or whatever and you're living in these areas where you have army ants, you can take the soldiers of those army ants, which have got whacking great big jaws. They, they're the ones that do the fighting, the defending of the colony, a lot of the hunting, etc. And if you've got a cut that would need stitching, essentially, you know, we'd get it stitched, what you can do is you can take an army ant, a soldier, in your fingers, and you can put it across the cut. So it bites down, and one of its jaws is on one side yeah. of the cut, yeah. one of the jaws is on the other side of the cut, and it holds it together. Yeah. If you've got a long cut, you can put multiple army ants along that to pin the cut together the jaws are then so strong when they lock together that what you do is you pinch off the body leaving the head in place and it creates basically stitching and this is something oh, where did i see it back in the day when i was a kid there used to be this guy called bruce parry who was an ex ex-marine sort of guy who would go and live with these uh he did a program called tribe, tribe. yeah and he would go and live and i swear i've seen it on there but you can certainly find on youtube footage of this being done with people using these army ants to stitch together wounds it's pretty cool that's wild biodegradable yeah there we go yeah I grew up in Southeast Asia. I grew up in Singapore. And being the tropics, the ants mm. there are pretty yeah. fucking serious, right? Yeah. They're not messing about. And I had two hamsters growing <laughs> up. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I don't know where this is going, but I am. Yeah, but I think you might be starting to put together where this is going. <laughs> and this is when I was like, how old was I? I was like nine or ten. Mm -hmm. And I went into, you know, like where the hamsters were in their cage one day. And one of them was just lying there and ants were crawling out of its eye socket. Oh, my God. And in the night, these ants had just moved in 
and just exactly what we're talking about just started oh, stripping this hamster jesus now i don't know why they didn't go for the other one the other one was sat in the corner of the cage <laughs> like <laughs> wide-eyed and shaking look at it it's little cage mate oh, just being God. taken apart by ants jesus that stayed with me well yeah and now, <laughs> now it's going to stay with all of our listeners yeah there you go r.i.p dumpling <laughs> Gone but not forgot. Immortalized in podcast form. I know. What a legacy for the little hamster. Anyway, so that's that's army ants. But do you want to hear, staying on the sort of insect front, about the biggest concentration of animals ever recorded? Yes. So we're gonna go back in time. Oh. We're going to go to 1875. Oh, that kind of back in time. Yeah. Not I thought... <laughs> you thought we were going like Cretaceous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 1875, to the Western United States. Hang on. Yeehaw. I'm there. Okay. <laughs> to meet Albert's Swarm. Okay. Albert's Swarm is a vast swarm of Rocky Mountain locusts. Right. First of all, I thought this was a man whose first name was <laughs> Albert and his second name was Swarm. <laughs> And you Hello. were going to come out with some, that's why they're called swarms, because Albert, uh, found, I was like, oh my God, it was really going to blow my mind. I was like, what? No. So the Albert in question is Albert Child. <laughs> and, of, and that's why we <laughs> name things Child. <laughs> uh, oh. And he, the swarm is named after him because he calculated its size. Right. With you. So Albert's swarm is a vast, huge swarm of Rocky Mountain locusts, which holds the record as the biggest concentration of animals ever recorded. So Albert Child calculated the size of this by multiplying the swarm's estimated speed with the time it took for them to move through southern Nebraska and calculated it at over, let me get the number of zeros right, 198,000 miles, half a million square kilometers, which is an area larger than California. That's hang, how hang big on. the swarm was. Oh, hang on. This swarm was in Nebraska, and he measured, what, the length of time it took for it to move across a certain point? So he multiplied the swarm's estimated speed with the time it took for them to move through southern Nebraska. Right. Okay. And calculated the size of the swarm to be 198,000 miles or half a million square kilometers, an area larger than California. Okay, so I'm getting it. So he's got South Nebraska. He's like, if they're going at five miles an hour and it's taken them this long to move across this area, therefore they are that big. Yeah. Right. I'm with you. I'm with Albert's maths. Can I just say, what? <laughs> so it was an estimate it was estimated to weigh 27.5 million tons and consist of some 12.5 trillion insects. That's a lot of that's a lot. That's yeah. I'd say a bit much. <laughs> like Albert Swarm, you're at a 10. Yeah. I need you at like a 5. <laughs> uh, need to bring that down. <laughs> account from a farmer. It was like a great white cloud. <laughs> account from the farmer. It just <laughs> That's the account from the farmer. <laughs> like a great white cloud, like a snowstorm blocking out the sun like vapor. And they ate not only grass and valuable crops, and but leather, wood, sheep's wool, and in extreme cases, even the clothes off people's backs. Trains were sometimes brought to a halt after skidding over large numbers of locusts run over on the rails. That's... There's a lot of locusts. That's not on. 
estimated to weigh 27.5 million tons and consist of 12.5 trillion insects, which makes it officially, according to the Guinness World Records, a fucking nightmare, (laughs) (laughs) a waking living hell. (laughs) This is perhaps my favourite Guinness World Record. The greatest concentration of animals ever speculatively guessed. (laughs) I could hold that record. I I could go... There's a lot of ducks on that lake. I'm, I'm going to say there's 14 trillion ducks on that lake. No, I'm going to stand on the coast and look out at the sea and just go, I reckon there's a lot in there. I think there's a lot of fish. Yeah. How many? No, no, no. no. Don't, don't, let's not get bogged down in detail here. This is my speculative guess. But I speculatively guess that the Atlantic Ocean, full of stuff. Print me the certificate yeah. in this world record. Yeah. Yeah, so it is the it is officially the uh, the greatest concentration of animals ever speculatively guessed, according to the Guinness World Records. Can I just say as well? I really hope there's a Guinness World Record for the fewest number of animals speculatively guessed, where someone's just stood 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 in a shed with two horses and just gone. Nah, I reckon there's one. <laughs> That's at least one. Yeah. <laughs> There's one horse hiding behind like some hay bales in a room with two horses and the the adjudicator or whatever is like, well, we know there's two in here, but he has guessed at least one. And so from a speculative position, he's absolutely smashed it. Here's your record. Give him the certificate. Anyway, a really interesting thing about the Rocky Mountain locust is less than 30 years after this ungodly swarm, Mm -hmm. it was extinct. Oh, you what? The last one was collected in 1902. It's gone. The Rocky Mountain locust does not exist anymore. So, yeah, okay. I'm glad you talked. When you started, I didn't want to, but it didn't sound familiar. Yes. You know. Right? So I'd never heard of, you think of locusts, we think of them in Africa. Yeah. You know, you didn't think of the United States suffering from huge locust problems. So what led to its downfall? How could this greatest concentration of animals ever speculatively recorded suddenly become extinct? essentially farming practices plowing and irrigation was killing off eggs in the soil that meant that these animals weren't able to reproduce in the same sort of numbers that they needed but because locusts are a form of grasshopper Mm -hmm. we've spoken about locusts a little bit before Mm -hmm. that appear when grasshopper populations reach high densities you pretty much can't talk about numbers in the animal game and not have locusts they've got a bit of Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah Basically, what happens is when grasshoppers reach really high densities, some species will turn into locusts mm-hmm. and exhibit this behavior. But it's theorized that they might not actually be extinct because they only become locusts when they're living in these really high densities. Secret and that the grasshopper might be lurking around somewhere. Given the right environmental conditions, could the Rocky Mountain locust make its return? Did it? Did They have done breeding experiments using many grasshopper species in high-density environments and failed to invoke sort of the famous insect. (laughs) Come on! Um, (laughs) Poking it with a stick. (laughs) Do the thing! (laughs) And it has been declared officially extinct in 2014. So very recently is when it was officially declared extinct. I think he's got sick of poking them with a stick. (laughs) But all these uh, artificial breeding experiments were done in artificial conditions. Could the Rocky Mountain locust still be lurking out there somewhere in the wild? This summer. (laughs) (laughs) Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the fields. Yeah. Just when you thought it was safe to go back into southern Nebraska. (laughs)
that's the Rocky Mountain Locust. But its story sort of mirrors another ridiculously numerous animal, also in America. Yep. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a sad one, but it's a story that I have oh, said many times. I know where this is going. Where is it going? Is it the passenger pigeon? The passenger pigeon. Of course, it's a bird. <laughs> now, strap in if you've never heard the story of the passenger pigeon, everybody, because I think it's the most extraordinary extinct animal that you've never heard of, and its sort of tail is a very cautionary one. So, we're in North America again, and we're talking about a pigeon that is 40 to 50 centimetres long, so pretty small little pigeon, which until 150 years ago, not that long ago, was the most common bird on Earth. Now, when we say common bird, that doesn't really get across just how many of these birds there are. Estimates put the numbers at around 3 billion, possibly up to 5 billion, and they would travel in vast flocks of millions. Also, it's worth adding there that estimates of this bird are at 5 billion when the human population Mm. in the late 19th century was less than two there's yeah. more pigeons than people yeah it uh, was their kingdom it was their planet yeah. <laughs> we, we, well, it was well, certainly their continent yeah. like north america was home to the most common the most numerous bird on earth it was a passenger pigeons world and we were just living in it so they were nomadic as most basically most things that live in these group sizes are think locusts think army ants think passenger pigeons they have to be nomadic because they can't live in one place because they're consuming so many resources they travel around looking for food nest sites throughout the eastern deciduous forests of um, north america and when one of these flocks flew over Boy, did you know about it. This is one of my favourite little things in uh, ornithology, is this direct account from John James Audubon, who's a bit of a godlike figure in North American ornithology. Is he the guy who did the paintings of the big... Yes, he is the guy who authored the most expensive book in the world, which is The Birds of North America, which sold for God knows how many millions. So, John James Audubon writes this, describing a migration he observed in 1813. I dismounted seated myself on an eminence and began to mark with my pencil, making a dot for every flock that passed. In a short time, finding the task which I had undertaken impractical, as the birds poured in countless multitudes, I rose and, counting the dots that I put down, found that 163 had been made in 21 minutes. So that's 163 flocks of birds flying over in 21 minutes. The air was literally filled with pigeons. The light of noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. The dung fell in spots, not unlike melting flakes of snow, and the continued buzz of wings had a tendency to lull my senses to repose. He goes on. I cannot describe to you the extreme beauty of their aerial evolutions when a hawk chanced to press upon the rear of the flock. At once, like a torrent and with a noise like thunder, they rushed into a compact mass. In these almost solid masses, they darted forward in undulating and angular lines, descended and swept close over the earth with inconceivable velocity, mounting perpendicularly so as to resemble a vast column, and when high were seen wheeling and twisting, which then resembled the coils of a gigantic serpent. Before sunset, I reached Louisville, distant from Hardensburg, 55 miles, and the pigeons were still passing in undiminished numbers and continued to do so for three days in succession. So that flock took three days to fly over. They were large enough to blacken the sky. The passenger pigeons roosted in such numbers that even thick tree branches would break under the strain. 
One flock in southern Ontario in 1866 was described as being one and a half kilometers wide and 500 kilometers long. Took 14 hours to pass and held about 3.5 billion birds, which could have potentially been the entire population grouped together. And I think the thing, I mean, it's like with the locusts, the thing that always strikes me about the passenger pigeon and the reason I say it's, it's sort of the most famous extinct animal you've never heard of is that it was in, not living memory, but we're not talking about that long Great-grandparents. Yeah, we're talking about the sort of... Maybe great-great. Mid to late 1800s. Three grannies ago. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, we're talking about this insane sight of what I've just read out from John James Audubon happened about 150 years ago. So their breeding colonies were called cities and could extend for hundreds of square miles in the forests. Uh, The biggest ever documented was in Wisconsin in 1871, and it was reported to cover 2,200 square kilometers. The number of birds nesting there was estimated to be around 136 million in this one city. So what happened to the passenger pigeon? How could we go from a bird that was so numerous 150 odd years ago to a bird that many of the listeners may never have heard of? So Native Americans had lived with them for a long time, mm-hmm. valuing the passenger pigeon as a source of food. Oh, yeah. uh, and the relationship between Native Americans and passenger pigeons is a bit unclear. So they could, have, they could have been beneficial for the pigeons, Native Americans, because they were planting trees to produce acorns and nuts. And they managed the land with fire to keep areas clear that the pigeons could then feed on. So there could have been a bit of a symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. between the pigeons and the North Americans. But they could have been competing with the pigeons for food as well as hunting them that suppressed their population somewhat. But whatever it was, it's clear that the pigeons really started getting fucked up when the Europeans arrived. Like, this is not being laid at the door of the Native Americans, yeah. okay? Few things are, I yeah, think. Well, in, that's a very fair point. In the history of North and South America, yeah. So this is where the hunting really intensifies, both for sport mm. and for protection of farmland. Because mm. as you can imagine, you're trying to plant some crops and you've got a, a flock yeah. of 3.5 billion birds flying over that are hungry. It's going to take more than a scarecrow. Yeah. <laughs> These flocks are so vast and the birds so easy to kill that it said a good shot with both barrels of a shotgun could easily bring down 61 birds at a roost. You just <laughs> fire up into a roost aimlessly and bring down 61 birds. There were competitions held to see how who could shoot down as many birds as possible in a passing flock. In one competition, there were so many birds flying over that to even claim the prize, you needed to kill 30,000 of them. Trappers on farms could catch... 3,500 in a single go in large tunnel traps and trees with nesting colonies in were set fire to or felled. It's just an absolute assault on the passenger pigeon during this really sort of small time. In one case, six square kilometers, about 1,500 acres of large trees were quickly cut down to get rid of the birds. So there's just this insane level of hunting going on alongside deforestation of large areas that did it for the passenger pigeon. Yeah, coordinated extinction. And they weren't helped by the fact that they needed to live in these really high densities. They were like incredibly social. And there's a lot of thought that these ridiculously high densities of passenger pigeons is what made them feel safe enough to breed. And as soon as you start sort of fragmenting and chopping up the flocks, their whole sort of ecology is based on living in these really high densities. And they just don't reproduce well when they're split into ever smaller flocks. Yeah, that's the bit I've been wondering as to what is the advantage in, I guess you're then 
so safe from predators and that you're one in a billion chance yeah. of basically getting picked off, right? Yeah. So then, if we brought them back, right? Mm. I should say there are people talking about this. Yeah, I've got it, though, because what they're not working out is if they need the big numbers to breed safely, then you bring back one or two, you, they're not going to get the ball rolling, yeah. right? So, you know when you go in like a lift yeah. and there's a mirror either side? <laughs> <laughs> Have you actually? And you end up with an infinity picture of yourself. We get the passenger pigeons. We bring a handful of them back by cloning, yeah. build a special aviary that's just mirrors yeah. so that they then see a billion passenger pigeons. We're off. You should maybe work in zoological you know you should work in a zoo of breeding these things have you ever seen what they do with flamingos no but i'm so ready flamingos like to nest in big colonies often don't feel safe unless they're nesting in really big colonies oh my god is it mirrors so there is in i think it might be longley i might have got that wrong where to stimulate them to breed where the flamingos were sort of making nests but they're not really showing much interest yeah, maybe yeah, they didn't yeah. feel safe enough they put up a big wall of mirror like a big sort of like massive wall so that the the flamingos could then see you know double the amount of flamingos and they started breeding amazing you're Love you're that. on it mate um yeah so the story of the passenger pigeon pretty much ends with the last confirmed wild passenger pigeon was shot in 1901 and the final bird in existence was martha who died in Cincinnati Cinc Zoo mm. yeah, in uh, 1914. So we go from John James Audubon's description of a flock taking three days to pass over to the total extinction of the most numerous bird on Earth in about 100 years. That is profoundly depressing. <laughs> it, yeah, it's like I say, if you've never heard the story of the passenger pigeon before, it is a very cautionary tale. Do you know what the most common bird, wild bird, in the world is now? Chickens are the most common bird. Right, okay, what, I see. Do you know what the most common wild bird is? Surely the feral pigeon. Nope. Okay, I'm going to take three shots at this. Okay. Feral pigeon, yep. no. It's wild, so no human... Is it some kind of seabird? Nope. Okay. Do you want any clues? Well, I've got one guess left, so yeah. We're in sub-Saharan Africa. You might never have heard of this bird. Weaver bird. Really close. It's like a type of weaver bird. Oh, is it called something like the social weaver bird or something like no, that? No. They do these huge constructed nests in trees. You're, you're, you're along similar lines. Yeah. It's the red-billed quelia. Oh, man. Is the name of it. So yeah. the red I wasn't pulling that out, I'll tell you uh, that. Yeah. So the red-billed quelia is found in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and it's believed to currently have a population of about 1.5 billion Whoa. birds. It's, like, it's like, sort of like a sparrow-type finchy thing. Yeah. And it's called the feathered locust because of the way the sort of flocks descend onto crops. But yeah, that's the most common bird at the minute. It's nice to see that we can live alongside massive flocks nowadays. Well, Checks notes. Usual pest control methods involve spraying avicides or detonating firebombs in enormous colonies during the night. Never mind then. Yeah, but... Right, okay. This is far more of a complicated thing than we should probably get into, certainly right yeah. now, without first doing some research. But I do sympathise with trying to craft out a living in yeah. places which are tough enough. 100%. Not, you know, you don't necessarily have the economic infrastructure or backup or all the rest. And If it's a flock of fucking quelias come and eat the food that you've grown to <laughs> yeah. survive, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can sympathise yeah, 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 yeah. why you might reach for the uh, yeah. firebombs. By the firebombs at night, right? So, you know, we do have to 
take these things with a pinch of salt sometimes, or not necessarily a pinch of salt, but you know, we have to contextualize them. Contextualize them when we're popping down to Tesco's and going, why aren't avocados reduced or whatever? And meanwhile, these then going like, ah, oh, they're firebombing the Quelias. <laughs> what savages? It's like, no, come on. Do you know how many pigeons there are? There's 1.5 billion Quelias in the world. Yeah. Red billed Quelias. I'm sure there are other Quelias. 1.5 billion of them. And there were 5 billion passenger pigeons. Now, I see upwards of six pigeons a day. <laughs> Therefore, given the Guinness World Record for speculative guessing, I'm going to say there's at least five. <laughs> um, 1.23 billion. So this is interesting. Feral pigeons often only have small populations within cities. Okay. For example, the breeding population of feral pigeons in Sheffield has been estimated at only 12,130. Despite this, feral pigeons usually reach their highest densities in the central portions of cities, where they're more frequently encountered by people. So what are we saying? It's all a lie? Well, I think... Great pigeon deception. I think what we're saying is that there's not as many pigeons as we think, which has sort of blindsided me a little bit. 12,000 pigeons in Sheffield? Which is a very small number. Yeah, how many people are there in Sheffield? Sheffield's population is about 730,000. And there's only, what, 12,000 12, pigeons? 12,000 pigeons. Oh, my God. Yeah. You do notice, I do find that definitely living in the centre of a city, like when I've gone to, you know, like visit you and you live in a much more countryside place, oh, it's we have, really noticeable, the drop-off in... Yeah, I mean, we have lots of wood pigeons. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Right. But feral pigeons uh, in the sort of town next to where I live, I think there's like 10 yeah, and you know them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know all the different colours. Um, wow, okay. So then... So I'll tell you what that does, tw- though. Do you want a 2011 population estimate of pigeons in London? Only, absolutely. I've never wanted anything more in my life. About 850,000, plus or minus 200,000 either size. 850,000 850, pigeons. There's maybe like a million in London. And how many people? I think there's like 8 to 12 or around 12 million. It's around the 10. So, so you're sort of 10 times less amount of pigeons. Yeah. And those people. So then if we just take that across the world, but that's in an urban area. Yeah. So taking that across the world, with there being 7 billion people, Mm. there'd be 700 million pigeons. pigeons, Which is nowhere near passenger pigeon numbers. Which is nowhere near passenger pigeon numbers. It's half the Quila numbers. Yeah. And not even taking into account that that's urban. Yeah. So then it's a tiny fraction of that is urbanized. There's basically no pigeons. This is a. We've stumbled across something here. Should we have some kind of GoFundMe for the pigeons? I feel save like the pigeons. Save the pigeons. There's none of them. There's none left. Because then, two hundred years time, yeah. there might be Rack and Joddy sat down with how many gazelles talking about the legend of the feral pigeons yeah. and how humans just let them go extinct because we thought there were so many. What should we do? And people knowledge? will talk about cities filled with birds. Hobbling around on no toes. <laughs> on stumpy legs, yeah. one-legged <laughs> Reading quotes from people. And I doth walk out my door that day and see not seven pigeons hobble past me on their stumpy legs. And people in the future be like, wow. Yeah. I can't believe we let this species go. Yeah, while they have their nutrient goop. <laughs> <laughs> and lo, some were grey, some were dark, and some didn't have feathers where feathers should be. <laughs> On a diet of battery acid and (laughs) spare chips, this species lived alongside humans in harmony. 
We've got to stop this. We have to stop. We're at a crucial pivotal moment in history. <laughs> We're about to cross the threshold. I feel like we've learned like we've learned something that people don't know. It's that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent animals and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death and he tells us how many he's going to be able to fight off. Now, today's animal has been unwittingly suggested by Leslie on Instagram, who has suggested the caiman. Now, caiman, they're a member of the crocodile family, but they're a bit like the iPhone S model of a crocodile. They're like the smaller, slimmer, cheaper version. And we're going to be focusing on the spectacled caiman here, because this is a common, the common species that's found right across Central and South America. Yeah, the nerd caiman. <laughs> <laughs> so, for the spectacled caiman, tail of the tape, Males can get to around two metres long. The weight, about 40 kilograms, which is about the weight of a typical toilet. Diet, generally in just fish, crabs, freshwater snails. So although they're a crocodilian, they're not necessarily bringing down big prey that you might expect. So that might play into what you're thinking about their offensive capabilities. Weapons, obviously, teeth but it's not an animal that's particularly aggressive like i say not one that will bring down big prey it's not an animal that will really un- attack unprovoked although tv naturalist steve backshall once stood on one while filming in argentina in 2010 and was bitten on the calf causing puncture wounds that he needed treating for so roddy shaw the question is how many caiman is too many caiman crocodiles obviously or crocodilians obviously a significant foe yeah. However, the spectacled caiman sounds like, of the crocodiles, definitely entry level. I want to say it's the one that owns a library card. You know what I mean? <laughs> it eats snails. Like, that's not a great position to be in as a predator. When your cousins are on the other side of the planet bringing down wildebeest. I should also say, actually, that a study in Puerto Rico showed that 55% of spectacled caiman had plants in their diet. This is the vegetarian... Pretty woke caiman. Yeah. I imagine they're very thick-rimmed spectacles, you know, worn ironically. However, still a crocodilian. Yes, that can't be underestimated. It can't be underestimated. Not when a male can get to two metres long. No, that's a big lad. Um, They're going to have very high defence. Again, very Mm. thick skin, scales, scutes, I believe they're called, with the bony plate in them. So they're basically living chain mail, two metres long, with crocodile jaws. Mm. Terrain. Terrain might play a part in this. What are you thinking? Take them out of the water. Do you know, I think for this, the terrain you'd want is probably a children's playground. Like soft play or outdoor pub play with I'm thinking outdoor. I'm thinking... I want stuff like... If I can climb, I want a height advantage in some way. What are you going to do with it? Let's not, you know... Just drop elbows on yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. The yeah, yeah, top of the monkey bars. I elbow drop a caiman. What, I, I, I didn't want something which they could probably climb. Like, I didn't want a hilly area mm. because they're just going to roam with it. But monkey bars, swings... Let's go two. I think this is one that I don't want to be too cocky, too much bravado. Even if I'm doing it in a playground, we've got slides, we've got There's escapes. There's an audience. There's a, oh, there's an audience. The people God. that have gone down to the harvester just for... Yeah, the pressure's on. Um, but And the other thing is, as much as I want to elbow drop a caiman off the top of the monkey bars, I don't physically know how many of that I can inflict on myself. Yeah. The caiman might not even feel it. No, and I've only got two elbows, so arguably there's a chance that the max I'm doing that is twice. That being, I'm going two caiman.
So we've had a question in from Simon Beadie, who wants to know, which animal would be the most effective at applying suntan lotion? Huge question. To me or to itself? To, I took that to mean to you, like when you're putting on suntan lotion and you can't reach the bit on your back. Yeah. Which animal are you picking to get those hard to reach spots? Does the animal, are we saying it's like a service, like mm. like a trained chimp where the animal fully does it? Or are yeah. we saying like like an animal on a stick, <laughs> like a dip the animal into the and then apply it? As a tool. Like wash, I wash my back. Yeah, rag on a stick. <laughs> um, no, I think the animal is doing it as a service. So the animal is willingly. You're like, hey, X animal. Hey. Yeah. There's this bit. I can't get this bit on my back. Could you come over and, you know, get this, get this little bit on my back? And the animal's like, yeah, sure. I'll come do that. But based on the animal. Because I thought, right. So cheat answer, I think, is. Cheat answer for a lot of these questions is apes. Because they've got the human hands. Yeah. But I don't want to turn my back on a chimpanzee. I'm not giving a chimpanzee yeah. a bottle of suntan lotion and turning my back on it. Yeah. So, no, that's out of the equation. Because that bottle's going up somewhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. That bottle is, yeah, for yeah. sure. So, not chimpanzee. So, I was thinking, do you know, you know those frogs that, I don't know if they're extinct in the wild now. They're a golden frog. And they, the way they courtship is they wave at each other. Yeah. So they sit in the streams, or they did if they are extinct. They sit in the streams, and they do this like really nice little waving motion. Yeah. And I thought, if it had got sun cream on its hands, it's going to take a long time, because we're talking about a frog that would quite comfortably sit in the palm of your hand. So it's not going to get good coverage, but it's got a nice... It's like wax on, wax off style. I think there's a few... It's the golden toad. You're right. Is what you're thinking of. Mm-hmm. And, but I think there's a few frogs which do that yeah. because the reason they do it is because they caught at the base of waterfalls. And so singing and croaking it's too loud. is of no use because the waterfall is there going... <laughs> and if you're a little frog going, hello, <laughs> hello. <laughs> that is one of... Sex blues. <laughs> that is one of the reasons Babies. why... Uh, I'm trying to drop some knowledge on people here. I uh, good genes. <laughs> If you live in the UK or in America, because I think they've got them in America, dippers, type of bird that live along streams, mm-hmm. they dip up and down. One of the theories behind that is because, uh, yeah, it's a it's a uh, a way of communicating through motion rather than sound because of the sound of the rushing water. So mm. that would make sense. So yeah, I'd maybe maybe be thinking those, but I'm wondering if there's any other animals that are better. I almost want a snake. Mm. Here's here's where okay. I'm at. You're, right. You're gonna need to explain this because yeah. at the minute I'm not buying it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We started at this saying something with hands is too easy, and I've gone as far from that as possible. What I'm seeing is there's there, there's a booth. There's right. the animal suntan booth. Uh-huh. And you go in and you're like, here, Mr. Snake, I would like suntan. Mm-hmm. You go step into the booth. Cool. You stand there. The snake then sort of slides through some kind of bath of sun cream. So it's covered in suntan lotion. And then basically you stand there and it just like coils up you. Oh. Wrapping around. People can't see this, but I'm like wrapping around, 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 around. And it just 
yeah. goes up you up you up you up you up you and then leaves so it just I'm more on board. fully smothers you it's covered in it and it just yeah all the way to the top and then like a big anaconda yeah but you also sort of pray that it doesn't squeeze <laughs> it doesn't squeeze too hard <laughs> it's a high like risk tapping out high risk suntan high risk high reward high reward suntan lotion that what about that, a manatee so I was thinking flippers yeah I was thinking flippers but can't be something that like a seal it's got to be something that gets out of the water because you can't apply suntan lotion while you're in the water I've got it mm. penguin penguin's a good one slapper 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 yeah just <laughs> flap you with its little wings yeah yeah there you go Simon I think our answer is penguin yeah or as a last ditch Hail Mary oh, here we go giraffe tongue giraffe oh I don't know how that makes me feel <laughs> <laughs> I, right, I don't know how that makes me feel, but I feel very strongly about it one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> because what I've got to do, because it doesn't have hands, is I've got to lather up the giraffe's tongue with suntan lotion. No, it's a, there's a bucket. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's big, big, uh, you know, cross-contamination. Right? Yeah. You don't want to be, you want to be the first person to the bucket. <laughs> <laughs> You want to get down to the beach early. Like, yeah, you don't. You don't want to be rocking up when that bucket's been used. You know, the day that the giraffes on the shift. Yeah, you want to be down there first thing. Yeah, getting the suntan lotion. Early, early doors bucket game is what you want because otherwise, come the end of it, that is spit, sweat, and cream. <laughs> I've got another one. Yeah, sticking with big African animals. Yeah, why an elephant just suck it up and spray, just hose you down. Ah. But then you're not getting the rubbing. It's got to be rubbed in to be effective. Yeah. But an elephant could just hose you down. There'd be not an inch of you that's <laughs> not covered in some damage. I just want to rule out some definites as well. No big cat. Because no big cat. No big cat. They're out because they're either going to crush you with the paw or they're going to lick the skin off you with their tongue. Yeah, with their really rough tongue. Yeah. I reckon a nice happy bear. A happy bear. Well, like... We know that bears are actually terrifying. Yeah. But there's also some like Paddington. Like a Paddington. Yeah, you like know, that. like like I'd want I'd want it at the at the twee end mm. of the bear spectrum. Okay. Like maybe a bear which has been mm. no, I'm um, um because because we're trying to keep this I'm 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 Disneyfying the bear here. Yeah. I don't want to do that because it would just kill you. So that's that. I mean you wouldn't have to worry about the sun. <laughs> <laughs> No reptiles other than the kind of snake mm, yeah. system. Tortoise would be completely useless. Completely. Or have you ever seen people when they pick up turtles from like sea turtles? Yeah. And their flippers are going like 10 to the dozen. Yeah. Ah! So if it was like a two-man job. Yeah. <laughs> and you had someone. And it, going back to my earlier one where the, where the animal isn't so much applying it as the animal is a tool. Right. So, so we're at the beach. I'm like, Jack. Yeah. Can you help me get some suntan on my back? And you're like, sure. You <laughs> just pick, pick up, up a sea turtle, turtle. Pick up a hawk's bill. Dip it in some sunscreen. And then you hold it up. And similar almost to the elephant, it just flaps its flippers. Put me back in the sea. The suntan goes everywhere. Yeah. And then you, you know. In this scenario where, the, where there's another person present though, I feel like you just get the other person to do it. It's not in the spirit of the game, is <laughs> no, it? <laughs> 
Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of How Many Geese. We hope you enjoyed it. We're having an absolutely great time making it, and we really appreciate everyone listening, uh, the people that have written in with animals for us to fight and questions. Um, please do keep listening, keep engaging, keep sharing, uh, and keep doing all the stuff you know that helps us podcasts out. We really appreciate it. It's 100% true, the kind of stuff you hear, that word of mouth is so useful. So do let anyone know you think might be interested. Um, and as Jack said, we really appreciated it. So give us both a follow. I'm at Slideshow Rod on Instagram. And I'm at Jab Adams, J A Badams. And we hope you tune in next week. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>